right. So our question for tonight is question 44 in the Baptist Catechism. And uh, the question is, what is the duty which God requireth of man? Uh, the answer of this important question, as this has to do with our responsibilities and the things that God has called us to, uh, is the duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. So this question is in some ways similar to the first question of the Shorter Westminster Catechism, which if anybody knows any question of catechism, it's probably that question and answer. Uh, that question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question would be the chief end of man is to obey God and enjoy him forever. So you've probably heard that before, uh, either in the pulpit or somewhere in a, in a small devotion. But this question and answer that we're dealing with tonight is similar to that question, but slightly more narrow in its scope. We are not asking tonight what the chief end of man is, what the most important purpose is for the existence of man. We are rather asking, what is man's chief duty? In other words, what is required of him? What does God expect of this man that he has created? And so this question assumes some things right off the bat. And we're pretty far into the catechism at this point. And catechisms are designed primarily to strengthen those who call upon the name of Christ. And so they're assuming that the things that came before this question, you've listened to them, you uh, largely affirm them. And so we are assuming that you believe that, yes, God does exist. That we are assuming that you believe, yes, that God has power. That, it, that he has the power to require things of us. And we're thirdly expecting um, that you understand that he actually does require something of his people. So not only does he have the power and the authority to do so, but yes, indeed, that is part of his plan to, to tell his people to respond and to expect them to do so. So all three of these fundamental truths though they are critical to the, the Christian's life and well-being, they are widely rejected in Western society today. If God is believed to exist, which many people still would say that they do believe God exists, but they really only want to think of him in a deistic way. Deism is the belief that God is real, perhaps that he created all things, but that he is very far away from us now, so much so that he doesn't really have anything to do with the day-to-day -day operations of the people that he has created. So deism, in some ways, assumes that God wound up the universe and then is just letting it play out. Perhaps he's watching, but there isn't a lot of interaction or consequence for the existence of God. That is the, the majority of the people today in our Western society who think of God, treat God as if he doesn't really matter to them as if they can live their lives autonomous from him and there isn't much of a, of a fallout from that. So in place of these fundamental truths that every Christian has embraced is more of a, a me-centered way of looking at existence. So in the, in the world, we hear things like this. We hear, I am the captain of my own ship. This life is my life to live. I can do what I want with it. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else or break the law, then I'm going to do what I want to do. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, I'm going to do what I think is right. These are very human-centric ways of looking at life and at our obedience and our freedoms. And these sentiments are the product of several worldviews uh, that have greatly impacted the Western world. One of them is called postmodernism, and of course these are broad topics that we could spend entire nights on, but just very quickly, postmodernism is a shift in general thinking in our society uh, towards skepticism of established norms and ideologies. So in the postmodern way of thinking of things, you don't just believe what has commonly be hel been uh, held and affirmed in traditions, you question those things, you're skeptical to accepted norms. And that comes with it an abandonment of the idea that we can be certain about anything. What began as don't be afraid to question the authorities has morphed into, in postmodernism, question authority itself. Question the idea that anybody has authority over you. So that is a very common way of approaching things today. Uh, secondly, that has led to moral relativism. Moral relativism is the idea that the modern self 
is the judge of whether something is morally right or wrong. It's not something for God to determine in the eyes of the relativist. No one outside of you holds the higher ground. Every individual, based on their own circumstances, has to decide for themselves what is best. And so the mantra of the moral relativist is live and let live. Stay in your lane. Let everyone else believe what they want to believe and just believe what fits your point of view best. Uh, Moral relativism is a dangerous way of thinking because it leads to a denial of absolute truth. This manner of thinking is inherently hostile towards God. When you deny, deny absolute truth, you're going to de facto deny God, for God himself is the origin of knowable, unchanging truth. While those in the church rarely lay claim to being relativist postmodernists, there is an unnamed version of this line of thinking that's practically permeating, uh, permeating the church in the West. So those who are Christians who wouldn't call themselves relativists or postmoderns often think in the same patterns as people who are. And so you hear them, even though they come to church, even though they profess to know God, when it comes to obeying the word of God, they reply with, you know what, I'm really busy. I would like to do that, but there are circumstances in my life that keep me from being really faithful to the Lord. Or you hear them say, God's word is too demanding for me. Maybe some holy people can do those kinds of things, but I'm just happy to be saved. I I can't expect myself to do too much with this faith that I've been given. The word's just too hard. It's too complicated. It requires too much thought. I'm just glad that the Lord loves me. Or you might hear from some, I'm saved and that is all that really matters. Grace means that God doesn't require anything of at all from me. And some will even prop up this theological or this strange way of looking at Christianity in the world with theological sounding doctrine. They will say, I am saved by free grace from the Lord. God has done all the work. And and that's true, right? But then they go on to say, since he has saved me freely through his grace, he doesn't require anything at all from me. I might even try to do my best, but when I fail, it's no big deal because I'm not saved by my works anyway. And so they don't matter. This is also called antinomianism. It is a strict opposition to the law of God. And oddly, what what it makes salvation about, it makes it entirely about you. Salvation then just becomes, am I safe from condemnation and punishment for my actions? It has nothing to do with the glory of God. Salvation, friends, don't be mistaken, has everything to do with the glory of God. Yes, you and I are blessed that God has saved us, but God has saved us in order to display His glory to the world. His might and His love and His truth are broadcast to the universe through the salvation of sinners like us. So our salvation can never be reduction down, reduced down to do I get punishment for my sin or not? It must be bigger than that because salvation is not just for us. Salvation is glory to the Lord. As is often the case, the most dangerous heresies have good measures of truth baked into themselves, but are wrong in a few critical points. True or false, I'm not saved by my works. True, I'm not saved by my works, right? I'm not saved by the good things that I do. I am not saved because I was better than my neighbor or because I went to church X amount of times out of the year. I'm not saved by my works. That is absolutely a true statement. True or false? So my good works, my obedience, doesn't matter since I'm not saved by it. False. False. Absolutely false. Your obedience does matter because God still exists. And He's not some far-off, checked-out God that doesn't care about you. God who exists has authority. And anything that opposes his authority is a threat to what is good. If I can do whatever I want to do in the universe that God supposedly rules and protects, then God is not sovereign, nor is he in control, nor is he a good leader. God is morally responsible to take care of my sin one way or another. So you see how 
those few critical points can change the whole doctrine. You can have a lot of good. The affirmation that I am not saved by my works is a, is a good thing. We need to herald that. We need to preach about that. But when you throw the extra caveat there that since I'm not saved by my works, my works don't matter, you've stepped into heresy. Because now you're saying that you can do whatever you want and God doesn't care. Now you're attacking the very character and competency of God. And so some professing Christians are shocked when they hear it preached, God calls his own to be obedient to his revealed will. God calls his people, those whom he has saved through grace, he calls them to be obedient to his will, which has been revealed to us. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So what are some things that we see here in this passage of Scripture? We see that there is a God, that he has a will, that that will has not been entirely hidden from us, right? He has told man his will, and this will requires us to comply with his authority and to conform to his expression of what is right. 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. And so the God who exists takes delight in his people obeying the voice of the Lord. Obedience is better to him than penance or offerings. You've probably heard that cheeky phrase in uh, our society. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Well, this passage of scripture in 1 Samuel 15 says that we can't have that mindset when it comes to the Lord God because it is better to the Lord. It is more pleasing to him for us to hear his word, to know what he has permitted us to do. Not only that, but to know what he has commanded us to do. And then to obey that out of trusting love for him. It is much more pleasing for God to interact with us in that way than it is for him to just put our sins onto Christ and put our sins onto Christ and put our sins onto Christ. The God who exists take delight in his people obeying the voice of the Lord. So is this a salvation matter? You have to be careful about how you think about it. Your personal obedience won't save you. So in that regard, it is not a salvation matter. But if you are saved, then you will want to obey God. That will become very important to you. So in that regard, obedience is a salvation matter. It's not the means by which you get to salvation, but it is the practical outflow of the salvation that God alone can bring upon you. If obedience is what God wants, then what is obedience? What is it to obey the Lord God? Obeying the Lord God means following what God says in its entirety. And that might seem like a hefty, hefty charge, but the scripture goes no lighter than this challenge. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Do you remember when I said just a few moments ago that many heresies look like good doctrines until you look at the fine details? And they might preach very good things to you time and time again, but then when they get to the one critical point or two critical points, when they shift away from what God has declared to be true, then it poisons the whole lot. It is similar with our obedience in that to be obedient to the Lord God is to not be conditionally obedient to Him. It's to not be partially obedient to Him. It is to not to negotiate some sort of middle ground of obedience where you say, Lord God, I will do this and I will do this and I will do that, but I'm not going to go to that length. That doesn't fit my idea of what I should be required to do. So I will be mostly obedient to you and that's just going to have to be good enough for you, God. We are not in a position 
to negotiate with a God who holds our souls in his hands. He is the, the being with authority. We are the being who is being ruled. And so we must capitulate, we must yield to his desires. And that means an utter obedience to him. And do we see this play out in scripture? Do we have examples of this need for absolute obedience to the Lord? Yes, we do. I don't have this on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel 13 in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 13. While you do that, I'm going to grab a drink. Been talking a little bit today, so I'm starting to lose my voice. First Samuel 13. So Saul, the first earthly king of Israel, is crowned. The Philistines are really upset at the Israelites. They are a neighboring culture. They don't like that these Israelites have been casting the Canaanites out of the land. Saul has a 3,000-man army at this point. The Philistines are described as having 30,000 charioteers. So you can imagine the mismatch we're up against here. Saul's army is extremely nervous. They don't know how they can expect to win a battle against this military behemoth. There is a battle brewing, and the prophet Samuel has instructed the new king Saul to go and wait for him in a particular place. And he has declared to him that after seven days that Samuel, the man of God, would come and make an offering in appeal to the Lord. And so here we are in 1 Samuel 13, verses 8 through 14. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So what did Saul do wrong here? Sounds like he did right. He wanted the favor of the Lord. He wanted his men encouraged in the Lord. And so he brought an offering to God. He gave him something good in Saul's eyes. He was trying to worship. He was trying to do things by the book but not exactly by the book, right? Who's supposed to offer the sacrifices in the economy of the nation of Israel? The priests. The priests. Those whom God has appointed to do that holy work. And so Saul, though he seemed to be doing righteous and religious things, was doing them out of the order that God had commanded. He was not paying attention to the Lord's command in completion, he was only looking at it in part. And so God rejected this offering as unpleasing to him. Partial obedience to God is disobedience to God. Can you see why the Baptist Catechism preceded this discussion on the law with two questions regarding the fate of those who do not have Christ as their Savior? I think it was very critical that the Baptist Catechism did that because especially for the church today, which is so weak on its understanding of God's right and authority and responsibility to judge what is wicked, for us to proceed these questions here, which are going to get into the importance and the beauty of the law and how it is a gift to us, to proceed that with questions like this. But what shall be done to the wicked at their death? The answer being the souls of the wicked shall at their death be cast into the torments of hell 
and their bodies lie in their graves till the resurrection and judgment of the great day. And then question 43, what shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? At the day of judgment, the bodies of the wicked being raised out of their graves shall be sentenced together with their souls to unspeakable torments with the devil and his angels forever. We must not lose sight of who God is. He is not under our thumb. He is not clamoring for our affection. He is mighty and holy, and he is good, and he fights for what is righteous. He will not endure with the wicked forever. And so it is critical for us to understand how beautiful and wonderful the law of God is. And in order to do that, the Baptist Catechism has founded that on an understanding that God must, because he is good and true, judge what is wicked. If God has power, we will always need to be respectful of that power. His grace to us does not undo his dominion over us. Think about that, friends. His gracious heart towards us does not unravel his righteous rule over his people. If there is a God who has requirements for us and they are to be followed completely, isn't it a tremendous benefit that God has revealed to us what he requires of us. I think Paul mentioned this this morning when he shared this question and answer to the congregation. How difficult would it be to live under the rule of a God who says, do what I want, and then he doesn't tell you what he wants you to do? How difficult would that be? There is great weakness in other worldly moral systems such as things like karma, What does karma say? Karma says, do good to others, and then the universe will notice and will give back good to you. Sometimes this is referred to as mystical justice. Now, what's the problem with that? There are many problems with a system like that, although many people would just casually say, oh, yeah, it's karma, and that's going to come back and get you one day. But think about it. If karma is really the way the universe works, who decides between what is good and what is bad? Who's the judge in that regard? Who decides how much good that you do is good enough for you to receive something good back? And how do you know that you can trust who's ever in charge of doing that judging? It is an utter crapshoot, isn't it? It's like trying to to shoot an apple off your neighbor's head with a bow and arrow, except you're blindfolded and 200 people are shouting at you the direction that you're supposed to shoot. That's how difficult it is to be moral in a land that has no moral standard. It's no wonder if that's the way that people approach things without a God who says this is good and this is evil. Without that kind of a standard, it's no wonder that everyone just says, well, I'm just going to do what I think is right. I'm just going to do what seems best to me, what's practical for me in the moment. It's no wonder that people retreat to the self. But friends, if our moral foundation is our own heart, you've already lost. Because your heart is not moral and neither is mine. We have inherited the curse of Adam, which keeps us from having the inherent right judgment to know ultimately what is good and what is is bad. We're going to talk about conscience in just a a minute. There is a sense in us which identifies when we're doing what is wrong. But because of the sin of Adam that has repercussions on everyone who follows after him, we don't have the power to do what is right, even when we can identify what is right. We do not serve such a God of chaos, friends. Praise his name. He has kindly revealed revealed to us what he desires and requires of us. He does that through the Holy Scriptures. And that's why this church is so dedicated to preaching the word of God, and keeping the word of God central in everything that we do in ministry here. Acts 20, verse 27. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders before he leaves that work of ministry and goes someplace else to obey the Spirit in a different area. And so he's gathered with the elders that he has trained up, that he has poured into, that he has prayed over, that he has supported, and that he will continue to support from afar through letters. And he says in verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of the law. The whole counsel of God. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The Apostle Paul knew that he couldn't afford to just give some of the good things that God had given to him to the church leaders. He needed to give them the whole counsel. 
because we are required to follow the whole counsel of Scripture. Counsel means what the Lord has revealed to us. That is one of the reasons why in Isaiah he is called the mighty counselor. He facilitates interaction between God and man. The whole counsel is what Paul shared with the Ephesian elders prior to heading to another mission. He declared that he was innocent of the blood guilt of all. Why? Because he didn't leave anything out. What God had told him, he communicated to those elders at Ephesus because he knew they needed it just as much as he did. He told all that God required of the people. And so his conscience was clear. I wish more pastors today could say with a clear conscience, my hands are, are clean because I've given my church everything that they need. I have preached the whole counsel of the word of God. I hope that when my ministry is finished, I might be able to have that same feeling in my heart that I haven't held anything back from God's people. God requires things of God. Or th- God requires things of his people. So what are some of the important elements that Paul shared to this people? What was part of that full counsel that God gave to the Ephesian elders through Paul? What has God shown us that he required? We're just going to go over some of those things tonight. I don't have the time to preach the full counsel of God in this one sermon, but let's look at a few things. God requires us to repent. Matthew 3, verse 2. John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we repent, what are we doing? We are acknowledging the guilt of our sin. We are acknowledging that though we are required to to follow the full counsel of the law, that we fail to do that. And so our repentant heart acknowledges the guilt of our sin. It confesses that offense and that that offense is not just an offense against man, but it is actually an offense against God. Repentance is a pleading for the mercy of this king as there is nothing in us that can redeem us from our sin. And it is, it is an attitude in us that desires to turn away from sin, to turn away from the thing that is wicked and displeasing to the Lord and to turn instead in the direction of our King who deserves our affection and our worship. So God requires us to repent. God requires us to hear His Word and to do it. So it is not enough for us just to learn good things. But God desires for us to take to heart the very good things that he teaches us in his word. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So friends, there is a posture of heart that is required in us. And the natural outflow of that love and reverence to God is that when we break his law, we will no longer be okay with that. That's not something we can muster up on our own. It's something that God has got to bring about inside us through a holy and supernatural work. There is a condition where one goes many, many years of their life consuming the Word of God. They read it. They become familiar with it. They may memorize it. They may even boast about its power and usefulness. But they aren't living it. They are not obeying the Word of God. And that's what... Brother James is preaching against here in his book. He's saying, don't just be one who hears the word and says, oh yeah, that's good, but then lives in a completely different way that doesn't match the scripture. Hear it and then do it. Be obedient to it. Recognize that if this is the law of God, then it is in your best interest and it is for the glory of God that you obey those things, that you act according to the word that God has revealed to you. You can memorize multitudes of scriptures. You can come to understand and be able to communicate complex doctrinal systems. But if your life does not reflect a humble obedience to the Lord God, then James tells you that you're self-deceived. That there is a wickedness in you that's being hidden behind the facade of fake religion. And so our true obedience to the Lord means listening to the word and then responding to it in the affirmative. Guys, if the car salesman drives up to meet you at the Hyundai lot. You're there to buy a car, right? And he drives right up to you in his shiny new Toyota. What does that tell you about the product he's about to try and sell you? It means that he doesn't have a whole lot of faith in the Hyundai that you're trying to buy from him right now, right? If he's, if he's driving a Toyota. A lot of Christians have got Hyundai theology 
and Toyota practice. In other words, they are living one way, even though they might preach another way. And James says that's not acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. That's not a gift he desires. He doesn't desire a whole bunch of religious offering and repentance. He wants true repentance, which leads to an obedient heart. Is obedience required for salvation? No, friends, you're asking the question wrong. Salvation is required for obedience. When Christ has saved you, then obedience is not only possible, but now it is your responsibility to thank the Lord God for your salvation and to trust Him every day to help you become more like Christ. Romans 8, 7 says, I'll put this on the screen here if I remember to turn my slides. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. When your mind is hostile to the Lord, that means you haven't truly repented the Lord. You haven't come to terms with your sin. You haven't come to terms with your inability to overcome your sin. And so your mind is still set on the things of the flesh. That makes you, by necessity, hostile to God. But when the Lord God has done a saving work in you, you're no longer hostile to the Lord. He's not this threat to your life. He is your life. And so now rather than push against every law that He has and trying to negotiate yourself into a a better freedom from Him, your heart wants to do what is right and good. Not because you're better than your neighbor, but because you're a new creation in God. Where should we look to hear God's word so that we might do it? We should look to the law and the prophets. We should look to the Ten Commandments. And we should look to God's moral law. The law and the prophets. When God thus saith, man needs to just obey it. We need to learn to respond in the affirmative when God declares that something is good. When God declares that something is detestable, it must become detestable to us. Our affections should be shaped and molded by the things that please our God. And what pleases our God is revealed to us in the Law and the Prophets. This is made specifically more clear to us through the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to get into these too deep because in the weeks to come, we're going to be breaking down the the Decalogue. We're going to be talking about each of the Ten Commandments, their importance to the believer, and why they are glorifying to God when we obey them. Uh, But the Ten Commandments represent the codified law, written down and standardized. These are truths that represent the character and the nature of God Himself. They're not random. They flow from His very person. So the things that are unique and holy about God, He says, come and be holy as I am holy. Follow these guidelines, for they emanate from my character. From these grand character qualities, many other smaller laws will be grown. We'll develop good case law in the Levitical um, code of law. The Israelites will live in ways that reflect an obedience to the Lord God and the covenant relationship that he established with them. We also see God's revealed will through God's moral law. Now, because the Decalogue is based on the character of God, which has always been and always will be, should we think of the law as having only come about with the Ten Commandments and Moses? We should not. Now, I'm not going to get into this too deep because, again, we're going to get into this later on in the series. But Romans 2, 14 through 15. says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's not saying that the unbeliever can just get saved by doing right things, by following their conscience. What it is saying is that there is no one who has an excuse. The person who was not raised in a Christian home still knows that there are wicked and evil things that they ought not do. There are things that intrinsically, when they do those things, there is, a, there is a danger that they sense about them, even though that danger might be accompanied by a thrill of rebellion or a sense of satisfaction or pleasure. There is still an underlying understanding that this is not pleasing to God. It might be pleasing to me in this moment, but it is not pleasing to God. Those things are in some sense written upon our hearts. 
Not enough to save us, but enough for us to be accountable to our actions. Think about the way that God addresses Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Why is Cain upset? Because Cain and his brother Abel there in Genesis chapter 4, long before a codified system of sacrificial offerings was established, they have both come and brought an offering of love to the Lord, perhaps an offering of repentance as well. And their offerings weren't entirely the same. Not a lot of detail is given here, but we see that the offering that Cain brought to the Lord was not as pleasing to him as the offering that Abel brought. And so he asks Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, then sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. How could Cain have done well if there had not been a law written upon his heart? And still God is there to warn him and command him to mind his heart, to be cautious. We understand here that apart from the power of God, we can't rule over our sin. Sin will rule over us. Beyond the law and the prophets, the Ten Commandments and God's moral law, we are given the instruction of the New Testament. And the New Testament largely helps us to understand how we operate in faith under the new covenant that is written in Jesus' blood. So from the mouth of Jesus, John 14, 15, he, teached to, he taught his disciples, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. So for those who are stuck in this mindset that obedience to God is somehow oppression, that it is somehow limiting to man, Christ has a very different message, and it is plain as can be. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And that's indicative of the kind of relationship we are to have with our God. It is not a peer relationship where we are on the same footing and we interact and compare notes. It is a relationship where God is above us. As our creator, we owe him everything. He has condescended to be with us so that we might know Him and so that we, He might offer His body as a sacrifice to us, to, for us to fulfill the requirements of the covenantal law. But make no mistake, Christ is not just man. He is man and He is at the same time God. And so Christ is greater than us and we must keep His commandments. What additional cue do we see tied here to the obedience? We see love. Love is not freedom from any requirement. Love is a willingness to yield oneself if necessary to make sure the object of love gets what is best. And what is best for God? Worship and adoration and praise is best for God. What is best for us? Nearness to God. And if obedience brings us nearer to God, we should love to be obedient. We should love the law of God for it keeps us from the kind of harm that puts us in line for chastisement, that jeopardizes the closeness we have with our God. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so here Jesus adds a qualitative clarification to the command to obey. How are we to do it? How are we to follow this law of God? How are to be, we be, to be doers and not just hearers? We are to do it as Jesus has loved us. In the pattern and model of Christ's love displayed to us through his obedience to God and his self-sacrifice for others. Jesus is the model for true agape love. And we're to base our love for one another on the love that he has shown to us. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Again, this is the New Testament's expression of the law. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, the word for spiritual there in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is logikos or logikos. And logikos, I think it actually translates better the way that the King James Version translated it. The King James, James Version says, 
not that this is your spiritual worship, but that it is your reasonable service to the Lord God. In other words, it is not unreasonable for God to tell us that we should, in response to the great salvation we've been given to Him, in response to this gracious gift, that we should respond with an affection to Him that leads to obedience. And so verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. To be transformed is a passive event, isn't it? It's not something you do to yourself. It's something that you rejoice because Christ is doing in you. You are being transformed as he renews your mind and makes you think differently, makes you think like Christ thinks about the things of truth. We simply need to abide in our Savior as he conforms us more completely to his image. And so, how does this look, friends? What are some principles that flow out of this? Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And this is a very well-known and simple summary of what it means to obey the Lord. Let's look, since we're thinking about the New Testament right now, let's look in Colossians 3. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Colossians 3 with me. And we're just going to go through this somewhat quickly. But Colossians 3 helps us to have an idea of what this kind of obedience should really look like in the life of the believer. And try to pick up on themes that we've already spoken of this morning and, and, and where you think this instruction might come from. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now begins the very practical instruction. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Look back over those verses for a minute. What do you see there? I'll tell you what I see. I see Christ laid over the Ten Commandments is what I see. I see the instruction of the Decalogue and I see that now that Christ has fulfilled it perfectly as we abide in Jesus, as we cling to Him and trust in Him and He transforms us to be more like His image, then we can put off the things of death we can stop the lying and the idolatry and the covetousness. We can stop the sexual immorality, not because we are powerful, but because Christ is powerful and we are in Christ. God's law, praise His name, is not do not taste, do not touch. It's not just a list of restrictions. We put off what is wicked, but then we put on what is holy. Look at what Colossians 3 goes on to say in verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all else, these put on love. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell 
in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so here in Colossians chapter 3, you get just a, a snapshot of life in Christ in the new covenant. How we obey the commands of this God who has saved us radically out of the slavery of sin and brought us into a new life with Him. And notice it's not just a legal document, but throughout the whole thing is this rejoicing happiness in the community that we have with one another now that we are all saying amen to the things of the Lord, that we have this closeness and this love for one another that is fueled by the love that God has shown to us. This is not just do this and don't do that. This is life, friends. And the law of God feeds this life and helps it to flourish and grow and bear fruit. The beauty of life comes in the, in the keeping of God's commandments by His power and for His glory. So to grab hold of some perspective, if you have been following along in the Baptist Catechism, there are several principles that form the bones of this attitude towards the law. Think about these for a second. Question one, God is the first and the chiefest being, right? We learn that there is no one greater than God, that he is the first of all things, and that all life springs forth from him. So all life owes its existence to the chiefest being. This establishes a foundation upon which law can be built. We learned in question seven about God's attributes, and from his attributes flow the structure for his law. He doesn't tell us to do things that are outside of his character and nature. He wants us to bear his image. That's what we're designed to do. And so his law for us helps us to know how to walk in a way that reflects his character and his nature. Question 12, God made all of creation out of nothing. And so there is an obligation to this God. Everything that's good in your life, you would not have if it was not for God. And so what do you owe him? The question is, what don't you owe him, right? You owe God all. So if God is good and perfect and true, and he is the first of all beings, and you only exist because he lets you exist, do you start to see why obedience to him is your reasonable service, as Romans 12:1 has taught us? Question 34. God called us. We did not seek the Lord God. So even though we were rebels to the Lord, even though we had sin in our lives and we had rejected God's authority, God in his great mercy has reached through that crevasse of rebellion and drawn us near to him. He has redeemed us for himself. He has gone to great lengths and suffered in our place so that we would not be aliens to him, so that we would not be in this situation where God is just some faraway deity that we can't relate to. God has done this for us. And in question 36, God justified us. He made our record clean by giving us the righteousness of Christ. His son Jesus suffered in our place so that the right and just wrath of God would have its, his right object, the sins that Jesus Christ bore on his shoulders on our behalf. Justice is satisfied. We are made holy before the Lord God. In verse, or question 37, we learn that God adopted us meaning that this was not just a legal transaction, but it was a familial transaction, that he has brought us near to dwell with him and to enjoy his presence and to trust him, to be provided for and protected by him, that we might bear his image and become like him because he is a dad to us. He is caring for our needs. He is growing us up to be more like him. And in question 38, we, we learn that God sanctifies us, that he cleanses us in an ongoing way, so that our immaturity will not remain a limit to us forever, that we can grow and be edified, so that we might even become like the full stature of Christ one day, as he finally glorifies us and makes us his own. So considering all that he is, and all that he has done on our behalf, it would be logical for a Christian to zealously obey God's revealed will. Is the law of God a heavy burden too much for us to bear? It is if we don't have Christ. But if we've been made new in the Son of Jesus, then the law has been transformed to us. It is no longer the curse that nails the coffin door shut over us. The law is now the key that unlocks a likeness to our Father. 
and we obey the law, we live in accordance with his character and his nature. It has become beautiful for us. It is our reasonable act of service to desire to do the law of God because it is what satisfies us. It is what gives us joy to see the Lord lived out in our lives before our very eyes and obedience is a gift to us. Uh, Ross threw threw a a good outline together that I was working off today as I prepared for tonight's uh, sermon. And I'm going to use his illustration. When he was 10 years old, he had a, a beagle. And the beagle's name was Josh. And I love it when people give conventional human names to animals. I just think that's really fun. Uh, I don't know why. But um, Josh was his dog. And he said that Josh was generally aloof until he knew that you were getting him some food. And as soon as that food was coming, his beagle was locked in. He would sit there obedient and his eyes would not move off of you through the whole process of taking the can out of the cupboard, putting the can opener on the can, screwing the top off the can, sliding the food onto the tray, getting the tray ready to go. The dog the whole time would not blink, barely. It would be look so fixed on that food because that food was the delight of the dog. That's, that's the only thing that it looked forward to every day was eating that food. And, and, and nothing could distract the dog or interrupt the dog. And so Ross was saying, our love for God's law should be like that. That obeying God should be such that we love God so intensely that if the law helps us to bring joy to the Lord and to glorify Him, then we should be laser-focused on, on doing what God has called us to do, that we should be heavily invested in knowing what is right and what is wrong and then walking in what we have heard so that God might be glorified in our actions. We should not be willing to let anything distract us from that law because it is joy to us. It gives us happiness and peace. And so let's look at some of the, the, um, some of the benefits that we can confidently expect when we obey the laws of God. We can expect assurance of God's love for us. Not because the law somehow saves us or, or because if we keep the law, God will love us. No, we see that the law is loving, that it keeps us from hurt. When we examine the law carefully, we recognize how much God loves us because we see what great lengths he has gone to to keep us from what we would destroy ourselves with. Romans 5.5 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we have this great assurance of God's love that he cares for us. He looks out for us. He protects us and provides for us. He even corrects us when we need it, which is not a kind of love that we, we want to have at first. But once we have been corrected from the wrong that we're doing, we realize how much God has done us good by t- taking us away from sin and bringing us to obedience. Secondly, we can look forward to peace of conscience. Romans chapter 5, verses 1-2 through two says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Just as Romans 2, 14 and 15 spoke about the conscience of man being written on our hearts, when we listen to the will of God and listen to his his law and then obey it, our conscience is more free. We don't have to walk around with the burden of knowing that Christ had to suffer for what we just did. Thirdly, there is joy in the Holy Spirit when we follow the laws of God. This is how a happy family operates, in peace, not in constant strife and battling. When we say yes to our Father in heaven and thank Him for His law, there is great harmony in the home of believers. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Fourthly, there's an increase in grace. The more we obey, the more the law makes sense to us and the more we recognize how blessed we are to be led by this God. Proverbs 4.18, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Fifthly, we experience perseverance uh, to the end. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
We don't perfectly follow the law, brothers and sisters. We know that. But the more we honor the law of God and set our hearts and minds on conforming ourselves to the will of our master, the more confidence we have that his work is changing us and is persevering us to the end. We might struggle for a time, but he will get us through those struggles. He will refine our hearts and make us more like Christ. He will win the battle. Sixth, we experience the joy of being reconciled to God. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? There was joy in salvation when our judgment was taken away. And there is joy now in the persevering that we have with the Lord as we live with Him and as we experience His graces day by day. Seven, we are co-heirs with Christ. Romans eight seventeen, And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. We have the constant hope of looking forward to our glorification. And in the meantime, as we obey the Lord here and wait expectantly for that day, we can know that we have a taste of the joy and harmony that we'll experience when our sin is taken away once and for all and disobedience is no longer even an option for us. And finally, we are no longer a slave to sin. Romans 8 verses 1 through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Praise be to God who has won this freedom for us. Next week, Steve Kestner will be coming and preaching for us question 45. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? And the answer to that is the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. So we'll be looking in more depth at that topic that we only barely touched on tonight. So let's pray. And then uh, if you have any questions, uh, we have a little bit of time still to go over those things. Sorry I went kind of long tonight. We got started pretty late too. But let's have a word of prayer together. Gracious God, we thank you for your many mercies. And we ask, Lord, that as we consider the merit of, of obedience, that we would recognize that obedience uh, is properly the outflow of a changed heart. Help us, God, to not let those who would drive us towards antinomianism confuse us into thinking that because grace has won the day, that there is now no need to treat you with the respect you deserve. Father, you are on the throne. This is your kingdom, not ours. We are heirs to it, but you rule it. And so help us, Lord God, to be thankful uh, that the one whom we have every reason to obey would not lead us in the wrong direction in the rules and the guidelines that you have given. Help us as the psalmist in Psalm 119 rejoices in every aspect of your statutes and your ordinances and your principles and your law and your commands. Let us Rejoice in these things as wonderful gifts from a God who loves us so. We thank you for all of it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Right. Any questions tonight?
that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Right? Not burdensome, yeah. So we want to be persuaded because God has regenerated us and you know, we love him because he first loved us, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So like it all flows together, but you know, it makes me think of Psalm one ten, like your people be volunteers and give your power. Well, why are we volunteers? Because he's made us willing, right? Yeah. Do we have reason to trust him? No matter what he says. I mean, absolutely. Think of the extent of his love that he has displayed in our lives, the way that he has brought us out of darkness into light. Uh, he has done this at great expense to himself. So he's given us every reason to just trust and obey and to know that whatever he calls us to do in his word is for our good, but also for his glory. It's not just for our good. And that's something I really hope to communicate tonight is that our obedience is not just a matter of what is best for you, but it's also a matter of what does God deserve from us. He deserves the righteous obedience of his people. And thank the Lord by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, we can now give him the righteous obedience that he requires from us. We couldn't do that apart from him, but he has supplied us with the ability to do that now. And by his power, when we abide in him, uh, obeying the law of God can now be a great joy to us as it is a glory to our God. If we were in complete obedience of his law, then we wouldn't be sinners, right? Yeah, but that's so that's like saying that if I had a unicorn, I, I would be able to ride to church every day without using any gas, right? There are no unicorns. <laughs> there, there's no way, there's no human beings who are free from sin, right? That's a hypothetical that doesn't exist. Yeah. And we What's the answer to that, church? How can we be in complete obedience when we are so sinful? Can't. We cannot. But what is our only hope? To cling to the one who is totally obedient. And that just, it should daily remind us, whenever we sin, it should remind us how much more we need Christ. And it should drive us nearer to Him. And less from that path of walking on our own strength and depending upon ourselves, and more in the path of depending on Christ and trusting Him every day and being in His Word and bring, being in prayer, faithfully seeking Him because we know that apart from Him, we fail every time. So the, the goal and the object in this life practically can't be perfection. We aim for that because God tells us to, but we know that that's not going to happen in this life. But the practical product of pursuing Christ is that we are involved with what the Apostle Paul calls the upward call in Christ Jesus our Lord. That he is, he is bringing us to be more like him. He's sanctifying us. And he's overcoming our sin as we acknowledge every day that it, we still have sin to overcome. I was thinking too, like what you said, like when we are this, like when, when a believer is convinced that the law of God is obligatory, right? It's God who works in his book to work in the pleasure. So. Jesus said, the Spirit, when I go away, the Spirit will come. He will convince the world. He will convict the world of sin and the righteousness and the judgment to come. When he does that, our hearts are, are circumcised and we understand that we're going to answer to God, right? Yeah. We're, we're convicted of our sin. We're convicted of God's righteousness and, and our lack of, right? And we're convicted of judgment to come. Those are, that's because he's granted us that faith. So, when, when believers say, I remember I used to not understand obedience is obligatory, right? Because when you're in an antinomian in church who's constantly strong in the law of God, knock it off. Sit down. So when, you're in a, when you're in a church that's constantly teaching that, then you always conflate it with salvation, right? Hmm. And not like you said, it flows from your salvation. You're saying that this is a good thing. This is how you express your love for God. And what you do, you're going to have to redeem this time because you're going to answer to God, not meritoriously, but because yeah. of the great work that God has done. And I think the redeemed heart really has the benefit of going back to Psalm 119, that long psalm about the Word of God and how beautiful it is, to be able to read that with, with, the, with the right eyes because that psalmist just rejoices again and again. The, the Word is not a burden to him. It is not 
a cage that he has to live in. It is, it is his freedom. It is the wonderful expression of God's love to him. And so I, I think in Christ we can appreciate that psalm so much more and uh, rejoice in the fact that the law keeps us from error and prevents us from destroying ourselves and helps us to be a better testimony to the truth of God and displays the character of God in our lives over and over, even through the things that we do and the ways that we act. So we really should rejoice in it as a gift and be thankful for the law instead of thinking of it as something we have to constantly guard ourselves from. All right, friends. Well, thank you so much for coming tonight. Appreciate you being here and uh, be praying for Ross that he'll feel better. Hopefully it's not that big of a deal and uh, we'll be able to gather again soon. But you guys are dismissed. Have a great evening. And uh, 20 more questions. We'll do that.